All right. Well, good morning, everybody. And it's great to have you here at the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. And for those of you who are also joining us on live stream this morning, we just want to give a special shout out to you. Thanks for joining us uh, via live stream. Glad to have you here that, uh, that way as, as, uh, as well. And I just want to say that if you're a guest with us, if it's your first time here at the Medina Campus or it's your first time back in a while, we just want to say thank you so much for being uh, with us here as our guest. And thanks for rejoining us if that's what you're doing. Uh, but if you are just uh, kind of getting reconnected with us, uh, what we're doing is we're actually in the third part of a series that we've been calling The Way of Jesus. And what we're doing in this series is actually very simple. Uh, we're actually working our way together through uh, the incredible New Testament book, The Gospel of Luke. And Luke, uh, we said, is a first century account of the life of Jesus. And so it spans his entire life uh, from his birth all the way till his death and his resurrection and his ascension and everything in between. And so uh, what we're doing in this series is we are just stepping our way through and journeying our way through this incredible gospel, the gospel of Luke. And, uh, and here's what we said. We said the reason that we're looking at the gospel of Luke is actually for the exact same reason that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. And we're actually told the very expressed reason why in uh, chapter one. Here is why Luke writes his gospel. He says this. He says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so we said, here's what we've kind of uh, looked at over the past couple of weeks. We said Luke, who is the, the author of the gospel of Luke, he actually writes like a, meticu a meticulous historian. And so he uh, interviews eyewitnesses and he gathers together a organized account of the life of Jesus. He compiles those things together into an orderly account for the purpose of this, so that those who are reading it, including us, that we might have certainty about the things regarding Jesus, the things that have been taught about Jesus. And so here's what we've been saying here uh, in this series. We've been saying that the reason that Luke wrote his gospel is Luke wants us to know that in times of uncertainty, there are certain things that you can be certain of. That in times of uncertainty, there are certain things that you can be certain of. That in a world of uncertainty, that there are certain things that you can be certain of. And of course, we said we think that this is directly applicable and completely relevant to the time and place that we find ourselves in today. We said that today uh, we live in a season uh, that is marked by exceptional uncertainty. There's uncertainty around so many things around us right now. And we said that in times of uncertainty, what we need the most is we need something that is certain. Uh, we need something that we can fix our hope, something that we can fix our lives, that we can build our lives upon, something that won't shake, something that won't topple, but something that is sturdy and something that is lasting and something that is certain. And here's what Luke wants us to know. Luke wants us to know that Jesus Christ is that place, that in times of uncertainty, there is a certain place that we can fix our hope and that we can build our lives and that Jesus is a certain place. And so it's actually for that reason that we're going through the gospel of Luke. And it's also for that reason that we've actually invited everybody who is part of our campus here. And even if you're not part of our campus, if you're just kind of a guest and you're just here to visit, I've been encouraging everybody to read together through the Gospel of Luke through this series. And so uh, we have actually created a reading plan and a bunch of different resources to help you uh, go through the Gospel of Luke and resource you to do that. And uh, if you wanna do that, you can check out our Welcome Center after the service. You're gonna find all the resources there. 
or if you go to our website, uh, you're actually gonna find this page on our website. There's all kinds of resources and reading plans that are surrounding the Gospel of Luke, and we just encourage you to take advantage of those. We just wanna resource you uh, to read together through the Gospel of Luke. Maybe do that with another person, maybe even the person uh, that, that you came here with uh, today. And let me just say that if you have not yet started that reading plan, uh, I just wanna tell you, it is definitely not too late to jump in. Uh, we have not got very far in that process, and, uh, and so you can catch up really, really quick and we'd love for, you, uh, love for you to do that. But today, as we're continuing to journey through the Gospel of Luke, uh, we are gonna find ourselves, and I would love to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter five. So like I said, we haven't got very far so far, uh, but we're gonna find ourselves in Luke chapter five uh, here today. And so if you got a Bible, if you wanna open that up, or if you have a Bible app, if you wanna open that up, and if you just wanna join me here, if you did not bring a Bible with you, page 836 in the Bibles under the chairs is where you're gonna find Luke 5. And if you do not own a copy of the Bible, you can have one of ours. You can take that home, and we'd love for you to, to have a Bible. So as you're finding Luke chapter 5, uh, the passage that we're gonna look at today, I just wanna tell you, it's actually kind of a fun passage. I'm really looking forward to looking at this together. It's just a, an absolute blast, the passage that we're about to read. Um, and just like pretty much every passage of the Bible, uh, you could spend so much time and really just digging at the incredible, incredible uh, riches that are found within this passage. Uh, but for our time today, just for the sake of our time, I really just wanna focus on what I believe is the main point. What is the main point of the passage that we're about to read? And I just wanna tell you from the very beginning what I believe the main point of this passage really is, what Luke is trying to communicate to us here, and it's this. I think that Luke is writing us to tell us something to be, that we, he wants us to be certain of the authority of Jesus. Okay, so what is today's passage about? I believe that the entire passage is really, the main point is this. Luke wants us to be certain about something, what does he want us to be certain of today? He wants us to be certain of the authority of Jesus. That's what he wants us to be certain. So remember we said that. Luke is writing this. He has interviewed eyewitnesses. He has compiled an orderly account for what purpose that we might be certain of the things we've been taught about Jesus. And today he wants us to be certain of the authority of Jesus. And here's why I think Luke thinks this is so important. It's because the way that you and I understand the authority of Jesus Christ, impacts many things. It impacts many, many, many things. In fact, today I believe that we're gonna see the way that we understand the authority of Jesus impacts specifically three things. And here's the three things that I wanna think through. Jesus' authority, the way we understand his authority, is first off going to impact the way that I approach him, the way that you approach him, the way that we approach him. The way you understand his authority has a direct impact on the position of your heart when you come to him, when you approach him. Number two, we're gonna talk about how Jesus' authority impacts the community that surrounds him. What kind of community surrounds Jesus? The way that we understand his authority has a direct impact on that. And then number three, the authority of Jesus has an impact on the way in which we worship him and the extent in which we experience him. And so those are the three things that I wanna talk about here today. I think we're gonna see all of those in today's account. So let's jump in. Uh, we're gonna start in verse 17, chapter five, verse 17, and start working our way through this passage. So here's what it says. Luke chapter five, verse 17. It says, one day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there and they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem. All right, so let's just hit pause there for just a moment. So get this scene in your mind. Uh, Luke just kind of whisks us right into this account where Jesus is teaching. The Bible says he's teaching on one occasion. 
And I want you to notice that here, uh, he draws our attention to a certain group of people who were at Jesus' teaching that day. So the Bible tells us that as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, um, this is actually really important. And the reason this is important is because this is the first time, the very first time in all of the Gospel of Luke that we are introduced to this group of people, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, if you've ever read through the Gospels before, uh, you know that these guys, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, play a very key role in the rest of the story, in the rest of the narrative. But this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke we are introduced to these people, to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. So the question we need to ask is who exactly were these people? Who were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Now, my guess is that if you've grown up around the Bible or if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you have heard of the Pharisees. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, according to historians, there's actually a good amount of obscurity and there's still amount of unknown uh, surrounding who exactly the Pharisees were and how exactly they functioned in society, what role they played. There's actually not a whole lot of clarity on that. But if you read through the Gospel of Luke, you're actually gonna find a few things about the Pharisees. So a few things that we know. First off, we know that uh, a lot of them would have been pretty prominent community leaders. And so we're actually told in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14 uh, that Pharisees were viewed oftentimes as very prominent uh, people, usually having uh, some pretty prominent roles within society. We also know, according to Luke, uh, that they were people who had incredible power and had incredible wealth. And so Luke is actually gonna tell us in Luke chapter 16, he's gonna say that the Pharisees loved money. That's what it says. So they were people who were probably very, very, very wealthy. And in addition to that, they were people who were intensely politically active and so we're told in Luke chapter 13 uh, that they were very political people. But the thing they were probably most known for was this, is they were very religiously astute. Uh, the Pharisees were probably the most known for being people who were all about keeping the Old Testament law. That was the thing that they were most known for. In fact, the word Pharisee itself, I think this is kind of interesting, the word Pharisee itself literally means one who is separated. And basically, the way they viewed themselves is they viewed themselves as separated and set apart from everyone else in society because they were the ones who kept the rules. They were the ones who kept the Old Testament law. And they, they would do everything they could to make sure that they could keep the rules. They actually had laws about laws. They had rules on top of rules on top of rules. And the reason that they were so eager to keep the law and to keep the rules is because they actually believed this. This is what they believed. They believed that the Old Testament taught that one day God was going to come and establish a kingdom that would last forever, which by the way, the Old Testament does teach that. But they believed that the way in which that kingdom would be brought about was through their religious adherence and through their observance of the law. And they believed if we can just keep the rules good enough, then that is gonna create the, the right conditions in which God is gonna bring about his kingdom. So if I could just summarize very briefly what I just said. In other words, I put it this way. The Pharisees believed that the way that they were saved and the way that they would experience God's forgiveness and God's grace was through their adherence to the law. That's what they believed. If we're good enough, then God will bring his kingdom to us. Now, what's interesting about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is a lot of times when we read that, many of us think that those guys were the enemies of Jesus, that they were Jesus's opponents. And, um, and I think that that's kind of reasonable to think that. I can see where you're coming from because if you ever read Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees, uh, most of the time, they're not great. They're just not great. However, I do think that um, what we're gonna see is that Pharisees weren't always Jesus's opponents. In fact, some of Jesus's greatest disciples 
uh, ended up being, uh, they were Pharisees who ended up being his great disciples. So the Apostle Paul, some of you might know this, who was a contributor to the New Testament, wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament. He himself was a Pharisee. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law were introduced to these guys. And then I want you to notice what the Bible says. The Bible says that they had come, now notice this, they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. So the Bible's gonna say that these guys came from everywhere. They came from, they came from out of the woodwork to come hear Jesus teach. And this is kind of crazy. They came from all over the place. In fact, I want you to notice, look in this passage where they came from. The Bible's gonna say that this is where Jesus was during the time. He was in Capernaum when he was given this teaching. And notice, what does the Bible say? Where were these Pharisees and teachers of the law coming from, according to verse 17? You guys see it in your Bible? The Bible says they were coming from Galilee, which is there, but they were also coming from Judea, which is down here, and they were coming from Jerusalem, which is right here, up to 70 miles away which I think all of a sudden you start to say, well, why were, they, why were they coming from all over the place to hear Jesus? Why were they coming out of the woodwork to hear him? And here, here's what I think. I think knowing what we know about the Pharisees and knowing what we know about Jesus, I think it's probably obvious why the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there. They were there, they were there to investigate Jesus, right? They were there to inspect the things that he was saying. They were there to see if Jesus, if what he said and what he taught met their criteria. Right? In a lot of ways, the way I think of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is they were kind of like the religious police. Right? And so no doubt, they were sitting right in the front row of Jesus's teaching with their spiritual radar guns pointed right at him, just waiting him for, to, for, for him to exceed their limits of their laws and their traditions and their beliefs and those type of things. And so they're just watching Jesus and they're evaluating Jesus. And then I want you to see what happens next. So the Bible introduces these guys, and then it says, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So this is Luke's way of giving us a little bit of a spoiler alert. So Luke's like, something awesome is about to happen. And then I want you to notice what happens next. So the next verse, verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. So I think this is interesting. Uh, Luke introduces us to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then in the very next verse, he pans the camera over and he zooms in on a second group of people. And who's the second group? Well, the Bible just says some men. There were some men who were carrying their buddy, a paralyzed guy on a mat. And I just gotta tell you, in my study, I, uh, I've really come to love, love these guys, come to love them. And uh, some of you might be familiar with the story a little bit. According to the Gospel of Mark, he also gives us an account there was actually four of these guys. There was four of them, and they were carrying their buddy on a mat. And here's what I also learned. Um, probably most definitely. In fact, I would say I am 99% certain of this. These men would have been Galileans. They would have been Galileans. The reason is because the place where this happened uh, was, in, was in Galilee. And here's why I think that's so cool. It's because we actually know quite a bit about what a stereotypical Galilean would have looked like. I think I've actually shared this with you one time. We were studying First Peter, and I shared this with you. Peter was a Galilean, and that basically Galilee was a fishing town. It was a fishing village, and it was notorious for kind of being like a podunk, kind of like off-the-grid sort of place, what it was known for. I thought this was so interesting. A while ago, I was reading in a commentary called New Unger's Bible Dictionary, and they actually talked about a stereo, stereotypical Galilean. So I thought I'd read this to you. And I just want you to, to, as I'm reading this, I just want you to think, in our day and age, who do we know? What people group best represents this stereotype? We shouldn't stereotype people, but if you do, right, 
who would this, who would this represent? So let me just read. This is a stereotypical Galilean. Okay, they were generous and impulsive. Galileans were known to be generous and impulsive. They were of simple manners. They were intensely nationalistic and earnestly pious. They were excitable, passionate, and oftentimes violent. They cared more about honor than they cared about money. They were notorious for neglecting the study of their own language. They didn't speak well, didn't talk good. And they were viewed, and, uh, they were viewed as uneducated and of questionable ancestry. Now, let me just ask you a question. Who might this represent if you were to think about a stereotypical people group in our country? We know who this is, right? Come on, these are hillbillies. That's who we're talking about here, right? These are, these are good old boys that we're talking about right here. So as I was reading this passage, I just thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun just to help us imagine, just to kind of get into the story a little bit. I thought, what if we gave these four guys some names? You guys want to do that? We'll just give these four guys some names. So I was doing some very scholarly research, as I do, and uh, I happened upon this website that's called the Redneck Name Generator. All right, this thing is real. This thing exists. And, uh, and I probably spent way more time on this than I should have. But you can put in your first name, your last name, then identify your gender, and then it generates a redneck name for you. So I, I typed in a bunch of names on this one, went through all of Gracelink and put all of you in there. And uh, no, I didn't do that. But I put it, I, I just want to share with you four of my favorites. All right, so we'll give these guys some names. I, here, here are four of my favorites. So one of the guys that I put in there was Pastor Kevin. So you guys know Pastor Kevin Poost here at our campus. I put his name in. And so he actually came out as uh, Duke Beaver. So that's him. So you got Duke Beaver. And then uh, I thought that was great. So I typed in Colin Page. Some of you guys know Colin. He oversees our young adult ministry here. And uh, Colin Page came out as Bubba Ray. <laughs> so go, go, go Bubba Ray. Then I typed in Jordan Schufelt. Jordan Schufelt helps oversee creative arts here. He was playing the drums here this morning. And uh, so he was a Clint Tucker <laughs> as he came out. And then my favorite, my favorite of them all, I typed in DJ Douglas. Some of you guys maybe know DJ. He's here on our team too. And his name was uh, Cletus Pigpusher. <laughs> That's who he was. So, so here you got the four guys, right? So putting some names to it. So I just want you to imagine with me, here you have Bubba Ray, you have Clint Tucker, Duke Beaver, and Cletus Pigpusher, the Galilean boys. And uh, by the way, I, I'm really curious. I want to know what your redneck name is. So after service, let me, go to Redneck Generator, let me know. Just don't do it right now, but uh, let me know after. It'll be fun. So these guys, get this, they come, and the Bible says that they were carrying their buddy, and notice the Bible says about their friend that their friend was a, he would have been a paralyzed man who was on a mat. And they were trying to take him to Jesus. And you know, um, I think one of the things that this identifies for us is that this was a, a friend of theirs, was a man who would have been in incredible need. And uh, that's always true, but it would have been specifically true uh, back in this time. You know, back in this time, they didn't have wheelchairs, they didn't have handicap ramps or handicap accessibility or those kind of things that we have today that he couldn't even get a job. The only thing he could do would be to beg, and he would have to depend on everyone for his every need. But on top of all of that, to make matters worse, uh, back in the first century, and especially in this region, uh, a person like this, who would have been in this condition, would have been taught by the religious community, and specifically by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They would have been taught that the reason they were in the condition that they were in was precisely because of their sin. And that would have been the consensus belief of the Jewish people of that time. So not only was he a person who was in great need, he was also a person who carried with him great shame. And he would have been looked upon as a sinner because of that. And so he's got his friends 
who are here to take him to Jesus. And look what the Bible says. The Bible says they're trying to take him to Jesus, but when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd. So as they're trying to bring their buddy to Jesus, they can't penetrate the densely packed group of people who are in the house that are there to listen to Jesus. No doubt the religious leaders were probably sitting in the front and there's no way that they were gonna let a guy like this through. And so what do they do? What do they do? Well, the Bible's gonna tell us that at one point they can't get the guy, they can't get their friend to Jesus. So one of the guys comes up with an idea. And I'm guessing it was probably Cletus Pig Pusher. But here was the idea they came up with. The Bible says they went up on the roof. They went up, hey, let's go on the roof. And they lowered him down on a mat through the tiles. This was the idea. This is not redneck reasoning. I don't know what is. Let's get on the roof. Now, back in the first century, uh, they would have had flat roofs. That's what it would have been like. In fact, your roof was oftentimes viewed as almost like another room in your house. And so when it was hot in the day, at nighttime, you would go up on your roof and you would cool down. So these guys go up on the roof, they start tearing the tiles off, and the Bible says that they begin to lower their friend. Now, notice this, this is great. They lowered their friend into the middle of the crowd, right in front of where Jesus is teaching. Some of you have the ESV version. In fact, if you have one of those study journals that you bought from the cafe, uh, it probably says he was lowered in their midst, in their midst, which literally means right in front, right in the middle, right in front of where Jesus would have been. Now, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I think, I don't know if it's intended to be, this is kind of a comical scene. Now, just imagine this. Here's Jesus preaching. I mean, he's teaching to a whole crowd of people, and everyone's packed in, right? And as he's teaching, all of a sudden, you hear this, like, scuffling on the roof. And I'm guessing people are like, what, whatever, we'll just keep trying to pay attention. And then all of a sudden, like, light breaks through, and then these four guys peer down, and then this, this guy just gets light, light, lowered down right in front of Jesus, like right in front of him. Now, I'm just telling you, man, I have, um, in my time, I have preached through some very distracting things. I have. I, I remember one time when I was preaching, the power went out. It happened one time. Some of you guys might remember that happened a while ago. Uh, one time when I was preaching, I had a person pass out um, and not fall asleep. That happens all the time. But I mean, like, like just pass out. Um, one time when I was preaching... I had a person shout at me. They just disagreed with what I was saying, and they just decided that that was the time and place to talk about it. And then another time when I was preaching, I got stung by a wasp in the middle of the message. I got stung. It was the craziest thing that ever happened. But I got to say, of all the distracting things that have ever occurred in my preaching, I have never had anything like this happen. A guy gets lowered down right in front of him. I mean, just think about this, man. The audacity of these guys. How audacious are they? And here, here's what I want you to notice at this point. I want you to notice that here you have two groups of people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and then you have this other group. You have this group of friends. And do you notice that they approach Jesus very, very differently, very differently? And why is that? Well, I think it's because of this. I think the way that we understand Jesus' authority directly impacts the way that we approach him, the way that we approach him. Do you notice the way the friends approach Jesus? Do you notice this? If you could put a word on the, uh, if you could name and put a word on the way that the friends were approaching Jesus, what would you call that? What would you say? How would you identify what it is that they're doing and how they're approaching Jesus? Can I tell you that Jesus actually has a word for it? He actually has a word for it. You wanna know what it is? Look at the very next verse. Look at verse 20. It says this. When Jesus saw there, what is it? Tell me. Faith. This is crazy to me. Jesus sees these guys tearing the roof apart. 
He sees them lowering their friend down. And the Bible says that Jesus saw that and he called it faith. He had a word for it. He called it faith. Here's what I think is even more interesting. Do you notice this? The Bible says that Jesus saw their faith. Now that's really interesting to me. That doesn't seem like something we say very often, does it? Oh, I see your faith. Oh, I can, did you see his faith? I, I saw her faith the other day. No one says that, right? See, in our society, when we use the word faith, typically what we mean is we mean like what you believe, what you say you believe. That's what we typically mean. So we'll say things like, are you a person of faith? Or I'm a person of faith. And what we typically mean is we mean, I feel a certain way towards God, or I feel a certain way towards spirituality, or I believe or I intellectually agree with a certain set of doctrines or something like that. That's what we typically mean. But faith for us is not something you see. Faith is something that you believe or faith is something that you feel. But that is not the way that the Bible uses the word here. That is not the way Luke uses the word here. You see, Jesus sees something. He, see, he sees something. And what does he see? He sees these friends, these friends who are carrying their friend and ripping up the roof and audaciously lowering him in front of him. And Jesus immediately recognizes that what they are doing is a function of their faith. It is an evidence of their faith. It is an action of their faith. You see, in the Bible, this, the idea of faith, this is always something that is followed with action. James chapter two says it this way, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without works is dead. In other words, what the Bible is saying is faith is evidenced in and it's proven in actions. Faith is always accompanied by behavior and by lifestyle. See, here's a group of friends. I love this guy. I love these guys. They don't have a spiritual pedigree. They don't follow the rules of etiquette. Here's what they have. They just recognize that their friend is in need and they just recognize that there is something that is broken and they just have a belief that Jesus has authority. And that belief drives them to action. And what is their action? To bring their friend at the feet of Jesus. And that, and that is what the Bible calls faith. It's called faith. It's called faith. That's what faith is. See, in the Bible, if you wanna know what you really believe, if you wanna know what your faith is, according to the Bible, don't pay attention to your claims. Don't pay attention to what you say. If you really wanna know what you believe, according to the Bible, don't even pay attention to which box you would check on a religious adherence card or whatever. In the Bible, if you wanna know what you believe, here's what you do. Pay attention to your life. Look at your actions, because that's gonna to reveal to you what you truly believe and what you truly believe, to believe, believe is, is true. So here, I believe what you see is you see audacious, you see bold, you see courageous faith. Now, you compare that, compare the friends, that's the way they approach Jesus. How did the other group approach Jesus? How did the Pharisees approach Jesus? Well, I think you're gonna notice there's a very big difference. There's a very big difference. One group, one group, the Pharisees, they stood over Jesus as the authorities. They stood in a place of authority over Jesus's words and over Jesus's actions. They were critiquing, they were evaluating, and they were trying to make sure that what Jesus said aligned with their opinions, aligned with their, with their traditions, and aligned with all of their perspectives that they would have. And the other party, the friends, 
they actually placed themselves underneath Jesus' words and underneath his actions. They lowered themselves and they laid helpless in front of Jesus, believing that he could do something for them that they could not do for themselves. And here's what I believe. I believe the way that we understand the authority of Jesus directly impacts the way that we approach him. But not only that, leads me to my second point, and that's this. I think we're gonna see the way that we understand Jesus' authority impacts the way that we approach him, but it also impacts the community that surrounds him, the kind of community that surrounds him. Now, did you notice in verse 20, I want you to notice the Bible says that Jesus sees faith. He sees faith, but do you notice whose faith he sees? Again, this is one of those things we can read right past, but I think this is so critical. Look what the Bible says. He saw their faith, their faith. Now, again, I think this is so interesting. It doesn't say Jesus saw his faith. It doesn't say that. It says he saw their faith, the whole group of faith. What do we have here? I think we have an unbelievably beautiful picture of a community. This is a community of faith. You have this beautiful picture of these friends. Here's a group of friends who are committed to each other, who care about each other, and they're united in their belief that Jesus has authority. And so because of that, they will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to help each other and bring each other to the feet of Jesus. I think this is such a beautiful and unbelievable picture that we have. In fact, can I just tell you, one of the coolest things I think you see in scripture is you're gonna see throughout the Bible that we were never intended, never intended to live our life of faith out alone. We never were. And I think what we have here is we actually have a beautiful picture of what God actually intends for his community to look like, a community that is surrounded, surrounded around and centered on the authority of Jesus Christ. I think it's a beautiful picture that we have here. Following Jesus and having faith in Christ is not a solo activity. There is no way that this man could have got himself there by himself. He needed the faith of other people to bring him into this spot. And you guys, I just think this is so vital. I think this is so important because I think what this is telling us is that for those of us who are followers of Christ, listen, what we need, what is vital is we need to be connected to other people who have faith in Christ so that we can bring each other to him. Here's the truth. Sometimes, sometimes, you need to borrow somebody else's faith so that you can be put in front and be brought to the feet of Jesus. And sometimes, sometimes, someone needs to borrow yours. I think this is a beautiful picture that we have here of what a community of faith looks like, that we believe that Jesus has authority and that we are helping each other move into that place to bring each other to the feet of Christ. You guys, can I just tell you, you know, you heard some announcements today about life groups. This is the whole heart behind why we do things like biblical community and life groups here. And we don't view those as just like uh, uh, just a, an, another option of things you can do at our church. We actually view those as very vital. And the reason we view those as vital is because we believe that we were never intended to do our faith alone. It takes a community of people to live out our faith. And there are going to be times, there's gonna be times when you need to borrow the faith of another person to get through the thing that you're getting through. There's gonna be times that you're gonna need the faith of other people to bring you back to the feet of Jesus. And there's gonna be times when, listen, they're gonna need your faith to do the same. And we wanna be a community of people who are centered around that. Can I just say, you know, we were actually talking about this, this this past week in a meeting that we had. And we were talking about how the people in our church, we've observed, the people in our church who were able to remain connected to biblical community throughout the pandemic, that they actually have been able to 
be strengthened in their faith and even grow in their faith during a very difficult season. But we've also found that people who have disconnected from biblical community have suffered in their faith and they've hurt. And why is that? Why is that? Can I tell you why I'm confident that's the case? It's because we were never intended to do this alone. We were never intended to do that. And we need each other to help each other to bring. My hope is that we would be a church, that we'd be a community of people that are like these friends, that are believe in the authority of Jesus and are bringing each other to his feet and helping each other to do that. So here what you see, I believe we see a community of friends who are bringing each other to Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Look what the Bible says. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend. I don't know why I love that so much. Friend. You know, in Mark, he says, son. He says, your sins are forgiven. So get this picture. Friends lower the, their, their, their buddy down. He's right in front of Jesus. He's just right there. Hey, I don't know if he's on ropes or whatever. He's hanging there or whatever. And Jesus sees this. And what does he do? The Bible says he looks at him and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That is an interesting thing to say, isn't it? That's an interesting. I can't help but wonder when Jesus said that if his buddies up on the roof were looking down the hole and they're like, wait a minute, what did he say? He said his sins are forgiven. I wonder if they're like, no, Jesus, he's paralyzed. <laughs> did you notice his legs, Jesus? Right? Why, why does he say that? Jesus clearly knows that this guy is paralyzed. Why does he start here? Now, can I just tell you, I actually read a ton of different commentaries, and there's actually a lot of opinions that people have, as you can imagine, why Jesus started by saying this, your sins are forgiven. But can I tell you why I'm convinced, why I'm convinced that Jesus would have said this right here, why he would have started here? Here's what I believe, and I wanna show you why here just in a second. I believe that the reason that Jesus begins here is because Jesus wants to make certain that the people who are there, and I believe Luke wants to make sure that we are certain of the kind of authority that Jesus has. I think that's why he starts here. I think that's why he begins here. And the reason I'm confident of that, the reason I believe that, is actually because of the context. So um, if you guys have been doing the reading plan with us, over this past week, you would have read a lot of Luke chapter four and a little bit of Luke chapter five. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in those chapters, you're going to see that there is a pattern. There's a pattern that emerges. And what is the pattern? Well, let me show you. So if you go back to Luke chapter four and verse 32, the Bible's gonna say that people were listening to Jesus' teaching. They're listening to his teaching. And what did they say? They were amazed at his teaching because his words had, now here's a key word, authority. So they listened to Jesus' teaching and they thought, man, this guy's got some authority. Then the Bible says in Luke chapter four, Jesus goes on to heal, uh, to heal a man who's possessed by a demon. He, he drives the demon out of the guy. And look what the Bible says in Luke 4, 36. All the people were amazed and they said to each other, what words are these? With authority, there it is again, and power. He gives order to impure spirits and they come out of him. And then right after this, the Bible says that he goes to Peter's house, Simon Peter's house, and he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And look what the Bible says. So he bent over her and he rebuked the fever, which I'm like, who does that? Just like fever, shut up, get out of here. He rebuked the fever and it just left her. And then she got up and she went and waited on them. And then right after this, the Bible says that Jesus encounters Peter and Peter's fishing and he's not catching anything. 
And so Jesus says, hey, why don't you let your nets down on the other side of the boat, see what you catch? And Peter's like, dude, we haven't been catching anything all day, but since it's you, we'll do it. And he does it, and they catch more fish than they can handle. They almost topple the boat, and they break the nets. And what does Peter say? Peter, when he saw this, he fell at Jesus's knees, and he said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, what do you see here? Can I tell you what you see? Do you notice that all of these things, there is an increasing level of authority that's being represented to us here, an increasing level of authority. Here is Jesus. He has authority in his teaching, but not just his words. He has authority over the demons, but not just demons. He has authority over illness, and not just illness. He has authority over even nature itself. There's an increasing level of the authority of Jesus Christ. And then when he starts in chapter five, the Bible's gonna tell us that Jesus heals a man with leprosy, which is not just an illness, but is a disease. And so now this group of men comes to Jesus. This group of men comes to Jesus. And the Bible tells us that they believe that Jesus had some level of authority. For sure, they thought Jesus can probably heal our friend who's paralyzed. But I think Jesus is here to show them that he has even more authority than they know and they believe. And I think, I think by the way, that it works because look, look at what the response is. The Bible says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, now hold on a minute, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? So now when the Pharisees heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, the Bible says that the first thing that they say is they go, oh no, this is blasphemy. Now what is blasphemy? So blasphemy is simply this, it's showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. And you can see that because they said this, they said, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Because only God can forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So in other words, they're like, who does this guy think he is? He says he's forgiven sins. Only God can forgive sins. And my guess at that point, Jesus is thinking, exactly. Now you're starting to get what I'm saying. And so Jesus, look at this, the Bible says, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? And then he asked him a question. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? Now this is a great question, by the way. It's a great question, isn't it? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to a paralyzed man right in front of you to get up and walk? Which one is easier? That's a great question. It's actually a really good question if you think about it because on one hand, it's easier, way easier to just say something. Right? It's easy for me to say your sins are forgiven because there's nothing to empirically prove that what I just said actually is true or not. On the other hand, it's harder to say to a person who's paralyzed, get up and walk, because if they don't get up and walk, then it's immediately evident that I'm a fraud and that my words have no authority. So I kind of get what he's saying. On the other hand, it's much harder to actually forgive somebody's sins because only God can do that. It's easy to say something. Like I could get in front of all of you guys right, right now here today, and I could look at the whole room, and I could just say, and those of you who are watching on live stream, and I could just say, Everyone with student loans. Everyone, anyone have student loans in this room? Anyone? Okay, ready? Everyone with student loans? Forgiven. Everyone, everyone got a mortgage? Anyone got a car payment? Forgiven. And you're like, okay, why are you laughing? Here's why. Easy to say. Easy to say. I have no authority to do anything of the, of the like. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows when he says your sins are forgiven, there's nothing that he has to back it up. And so that's why Jesus says this but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. 
I love the way one commentator put this, this, this moment. He said it this way. He said, the stakes could not have been higher. Either Jesus would be proved to be God in human flesh, or he would be shown to be a blasphemer who claimed authority that did not belong to him. When the man stood up and went home, the truth was inescapable. Jesus has the authority that only God has, the authority to forgive people's sins. And so you see, I believe that verse 24, what we see in verse 24, I believe this is the climax of this entire section. I think this is the whole point. Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority even on earth to forgive sins. And I also want you to notice something interesting. Jesus calls himself something very fascinating here. Do you guys notice this? You see what he calls himself? He calls himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Now, that is one of those little details that we read right past and we probably don't think twice about. We're like, that's just a weird thing that Jesus says. Is that a weird thing, though, Son of Man? Aren't we all Son of Men? What does that mean when he calls himself the Son of Man? Well, I want you to know that when Jesus would have said this, this statement right here, would have popped every circuit breaker in the minds of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the reason is because for them, this term was loaded with meaning. It actually finds its reference all the way back in the Old Testament. And I just wanna show it to you without getting into detail. This is the first time Luke mentions it in his gospel. This is the term that Jesus used to refer to himself 25 times in the gospel of Luke. This is the most common phrase that Jesus uses to talk about himself as the son of man. And let me show you where it finds its origins. It actually finds its origins in Daniel chapter seven. And I won't dig too into it, but here's, here's what he says. He says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the, here it is, the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and he was led into his presence. And he was given, now here's the key. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this is what she does in this passage. The Bible says that there's gonna come the one that's like a son of a man. In other words, that he is gonna come in human likeness. And the Bible says that he is gonna be sent by the ancient of days. That's a way of talking about God. He's gonna be sent from God. And he is gonna be given authority and glory and sovereign power to do what? To establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And here, Jesus says to these people, he says, that's me. I am the son of man who has authority to forgive sins in in this earth. And so the Bible says that he looks at the man and he says, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And when he says that, the Bible says in verse 25, immediately he stood up in front of all of them and he took what he had been laying on. I love that. It doesn't even say he took his mat. He took the thing that he was laying on and he went home and he was praising God. And I want you to notice his response. The Bible says when he gets up and he begins walking and he starts going home, the Bible says that his response is that he was praising God, that he was praising God. And not only was he praising God, not just him, but look what the Bible says. Everyone else that was there was amazed. Look at the words that are used here. They were amazed and they praised God and they were filled with awe. Literally, the word there is awesome. The way it's translated in the Greek, it literally is to be full of awe and amazement and fear. Do you guys ever have a moment when you stand next to something that's so incredible, like on the edge of the Grand Canyon or on the edge of a raging sea, and it's so powerful and it's so inspiring, but it's so terrifying? Do you ever have that feeling before? Awesome. That's what they felt in that moment. Awesome. And the Bible says they said, today we have seen remarkable things. And you see, this, I think, reveals the third thing. The way that we understand the authority of Jesus, yes, it impacts the way that we approach him, and yes, it impacts the community that surrounds him, 
but it also impacts the way that we worship him, the level that we experience him, the type, the type of transformation that we experience when we come to him. So here's what I believe. I believe when we approach Jesus like this, when we approach Jesus standing over him as the authority, when we approach Jesus as critics, when we weigh his words and we weigh his actions based on our traditions and our perceptions and our presuppositions and our opinions, looking for him to validate our ideas and enforce our presuppositions, I think when we do that, we get exactly what we came for. And what do we get? Here's what we get. We get a domesticated version of Jesus that is a construct of our own making and is only as powerful as we are. However, I think when we approach Jesus this way, when we place ourselves underneath his authority, when we approach him in faith, believing that he has authority, and when we together as a community come before him and bring each other to this Jesus, believing that he's gonna give to us not what we want, but what we need the most, I believe when that happens, then we will experience God in a way we never have before. And I believe our worship will soar to heights that we've never experienced before because we will see him work and we will see him move. I believe the extent to which we give Jesus authority is the extent to which we experience, his, experience him and we worship him in these ways. So with that, I wanna invite the band to come up. And as the band comes up and has a moment to lead us in worship, I just wanna close with two thoughts, two quick reflections that I have uh, in light of what we just read. So in light of everything that we just read, here's two things I wanna close with, two things that came to my mind. Number one, Jesus is awesome. Uh, when I was reading this passage, it's just like, Jesus, how awesome is Jesus? In this passage, look at the authority. Luke wants us to see. Look at his authority. Look at his authority. And yet, look at what Jesus does with the authority that he has. Rather than using his authority to subjugate people, Jesus uses his authority to liberate people. What a good king. What a good king. And I think what Luke is trying to show us is that if this is the kind of Jesus that we're talking about, then you don't approach Jesus, that we should never approach Jesus as just an assistant to our lives. We should never approach Jesus as someone who just advises us or as a life coach. This is the kind of person that you fall at your feet and you call him the Lord. I think that if this is true about Jesus, if he has the authority even to forgive sins, authority all to that level, I believe that the most reasonable thing you can do is write a blank check with your life and hand it at the feet of Christ. You know, we say this sometimes. We say sometimes the thing that we do is we give Jesus gift cards to our life. You guys know what a gift card is, right? It's to a designated place. Okay, Jesus, here, you, ha you can have this much authority to this part of my life, but you can't touch this and you can't touch this and you can't touch this. And I'm just telling you, if Luke is telling us, if this is true, if Jesus has this level of authority, this demands a response. And the only reasonable response is to give him a blank check because all of authority is his and he is a good, good king. Jesus is awesome. Here's the second thing. His friends are inspiring. I don't know about you guys, man. I'm inspired by these friends. These guys are awesome. I love them. They're, I mean, not awesome like Jesus is awesome, but they are inspiring to me. Listen, here's the truth. If forgiveness is the greatest human need, if that's true, and Jesus has authority to forgive sins, if that's true, then I believe that the most loving thing that we could ever do is do everything that we can to wreck the roof to bring people to Jesus and to bring them to his feet. I love that little phrase, wreck the roof. The first time I heard it was from a pastor by the name of Eric Brockett. 
And he said, I love these friends because they were willing to overcome every obstacle imaginable so that they could wreck the roof and make a mess so they could bring their friend to Jesus. And I'll just tell you, I find that so inspiring because I don't wanna be the kind of person, I don't know about you guys, I don't wanna be the kind of person who's more concerned about making a mess than I am about messy people like us coming to Jesus. And I don't wanna be the kind of person who's more upset when things get broken than I am when broken people experience the power of Jesus. And my hope is that we can be a community of people who do the same. My hope is that we can be a community that approach Jesus with all authority. And my hope is that we can be a community that bring each other to Jesus, believing that he has authority. And my prayer is that we be a community of people who worship and experience God like no other. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I wanna say thank you that you have authority. You have authority. You have authority over You have authority over disease, over illness. You have authority over history. You have authority over nature. You have authority over sin. You have authority over heaven. You have authority over earth. God, do you have authority over us? We wanna invite you to take your place as king in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to offer you a blank check. Lord, it's yours. Our life is yours. We want it to be yours. Father, all glory and honor belongs to you. And I pray that as we come to you as an authority and we allow for you to transform us and interact with us, God, that we would see you work in our lives in powerful ways. I'm gonna ask these things and I pray it in Jesus' name.